From Washington, Alt-Right Politics, America's most trusted midweek news program, the sharpest minds, realist sources, the most hardline positions. Introducing Richard Spencer, president of the National Policy Institute, Hannibal Bateman, seminal essayist, Don Camillo, MPI's resident scholar on developing countries, and I'm your host, Greg Ritter. Issue one, today Virginia held gubernatorial elections, Democrat Ralph Northam thrashed Republican Ed Gillespie 56 to 44. Virginia is just the latest victim of Browning demographics. The state, formerly a right-wing stronghold, has been on a downslide over the past few decades, largely due to Asiatic immigration and the explosive growth of the U.S. government and the D.C. suburbs. The campaign featured highly provocative rhetoric from both sides. Gillespie's ads highlighted the increase in activity by MS-13, and Northam's supporters produced a now-notorious commercial depicting non-white children fleeing from a stereotyped white male in a pickup truck, who may have been Carlos Rex. <laughs> Northam served as the lieutenant governor of Virginia before he served uh, in the VA State Senate and in the U.S. Army. Gillespie is a typical product of the Republican machine. His previous posts include counsel to the president during the Bush II era and chairman of the Republican National Committee. Northam replaces his former boss, former Governor Terry McAuliffe. Richard, did we blow the election for the Republicans? Well, that is the narrative. I, I saw this from Rick Wilson telling me to personally take a victory lap for destroying the Republican Party across the state. And uh, I doubt this narrative will hold much water, but... Uh, Yes, I do think the Republicans are going to blame it on the alt-right. All of those minorities, natural Republicans, each and every one of them, were on the verge of voting for Ed Gillespie because they value sound physical discipline and uh, want uh, lower mortgage rates. But unfortunately, men in tiki torches came to their homes at night and threatened their lives and prevented them all those from... all those arabs and <laughs> indians who live in charlottesville <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> but the the fact is uh there are some other narratives that are much more obvious and 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 much more uh cogent uh the first is that voters overwhelmingly support the monuments uh this is a this is a racially charged issue it, it obviously is like a sub-racial issue in the sense that when you're talking about the monuments, you are talking about race at some level. Gillespie won 59% of the white vote. That is typical for a Republican candidate, a a generic Republican candidate. Um, Romney won such numbers. Trump won such numbers, although he uh, won uh, uh, different whites, which allowed him to achieve this miraculous uh, electoral college victory. Uh, But yes, that is the Republican base. The Republican base overwhelmingly supports the monuments. So this notion that the alt-right is defeating Republican candidates uh, by forthrightly standing for the monuments is absolutely absurd. Uh, I guess one could make the argument that uh, the alt-right, because we are so bold that we energize minorities. Uh, I think they generally uh, 
don't like white people in general. 80% of them voted for Northam, who is a, a Tim Kaine-like Democrat. He actually, vote, uh, uh, from what I've read, voted for George W. Bush twice, uh, is this generic middle-of-the-road person, uh, but he can easily take advantage of the browning of the state and this demographic wave, which will lift all Democratic boats, vo- uh, including rather lame white physicians. Well, this isn't the first time that uh, Virginia politics has been heavily racialized. We were talking earlier about notorious incident that I remember from high school, uh, the Makaka incident of 2006. Uh, what's do you want to uh, Yeah, do you want to... Please tell Don, us Don Camillo, could you... Actually, you remember it. I don't... I do remember. I do, who was who well. was the? Uh... It was my good man George Allen the third. Oh that right, too. George Allen. Yeah. I also was in high school and I was president of the Young Republicans at that time, and I just probably doxed myself, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was glorious. We all had. We thought it was. I mean, obviously, all these kids are high school age and not woke on these things, but I think we're all born woke on the Macaca question. Any white man that says <laughs> Macaca is immediately like hilarious, <laughs> and not for the wrong reasons, for the greatest reasons. I, I just, don't. So the story yeah, is yeah, this. So, yeah. The story is this. George Allen III, who's like literally, if if bros could, uh, I mean, he is the bro candidate. I mean, I'm not I, I'm not going to can't uh, comment on his actual policy, his policy substantively because I was too young. I don't remember. I don't even know what he what happened. But he was a uh, UVA uh, Cavaliers uh, quarterback. Uh, and, you know, daddy was in politics. Real real good old boy. And, uh, you know, I think he never did anything from being from football to politics. I think he just that's just what he did. And then um, in when was this? Oh, wait, no, before then. 2006. 2006. Right. And uh, at this point, he held a rally and uh, his opponent, whose name is lost to history because he or she is not important. Jim Webb, right? Oh, I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Who, who, this adds is, another uh, element to the yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. Because yes. he's one of the few blue dogs on that side of the mm-hmm. aisle that I could potentially see being saved by Trumpism if, if such a thing is possible. Becoming the alt right, the face of the alt right. Yeah, like Joe Manchin <laughs> and those. Anyway, but that's anyway. another story. So um, George Allen the Third holds some sort of rally. And uh, the opponent, uh, who we we now think is Jim Webb, will confirm this in a moment. People yeah, are furious. Jim Webb. Yeah, yeah, was Jim was. Webb? Okay. Um, sent an operative uh, into the crowd, and that operative happened to be a very dark Dravidian Indian, and uh, he started making himself uh, noticed. I don't know if he was asking questions or if there was a scuffle, but either way, George Allen looked down from the um, from the podium from which he was speaking. And pointed him out and said, someone get that macaca out of here. I think he addressed him directly and said, hey, macaca. Macaca. <laughs> Which, think? you know, for those, I mean, I'm sh- I feel like most alt-writers, if you're already here, you know what macaca means. If you don't, literally speaking, it's a, it's a genus of monkey. It's a, spe- it's a type of monkey, right? A macaca? I mean, right. it's And just, figuratively, it's just a great, like, little, little Negro Sambo way of calling. It's, it's a Portuguese term of racial derision. Or, or, or yeah. affection. I don't know. I've, I've had macaca in my life. He might have literally thought he was an <laughs> actual macaca. Right. Well, you know, those southern Indians, you never know. Well, you know, uh, Nicholas II uh, supposedly com- called the Japanese uh, macaki <laughs> during, uh, during the 1905 war. Yeah. That might not be appropriate. We're a family. Uh, yeah. 
Well, I'm just okay. Yeah, well, no, I'm, no, not, no, I'm I, not saying. I'm just quoting Nicholas II. It doesn't no, 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 mean I, was I saying agree. Makaki, Bukaki. I was making a bad joke. Oh, oh God. <laughs> Which is sad because this is interesting that to to make up for to wash away that sin. What I just said. Um, the the Japanese are an interesting case of how people uh, kind of uh, navigate the the treacherous road from non-white to white. The Irish and the Italians did it. So the Japanese are these fringe people that at the point of when you're speaking, Nicholas II, before the 1905 Russo-Japanese War, they were literally seen as, like you say, monkeys. People were like, oh, who let's, are these, uh, these let's, island dwellers? Yeah, and, but uh, wasn't there with the... They, they, they wrecked the Russian fleet, two Russian fleets, the Baltic yes, fleet yes. and the... Well, okay, let's, okay, let's, okay. well, once we finish rehashing this, the Makaka affair, the, the his excuse was that his grandmother, I think... Was from Tunisia, and his mother actually. Oh, his yes, mother. That was the excuse. And yeah. it was she a Sephard or something? She was Sephardic. Yes. Oh no! Surprise! Oh no! <laughs> WTF? I so love many Sephardic layers. Now. <laughs> 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 and she had uh, just used the word at some point, and he picked it up. And oh, I just I didn't know what it meant. I just thought it meant like you know, guy. Well, <laughs> let me put it this way: I don't want to dox myself any further, but having some very close family ties to people from that part of the world. The French for macaque is macaque, and we do use it for, I mean, we did, did but back before we, when we were a real country, when we were in clown world. The French used it for anything darker than, you know, a Greek. It was just like, oh, you know, macaque. You know, just, you know. So, yeah, I could buy that story. Mm-hmm. All right. So, since the, you know, those days, things have certainly changed in Virginia politics. Uh, it's uh, no longer, well, it's, I guess, becoming again acceptable to say these things in public or... Uh, <laughs> Well, well, you know, Greg, if I could uh, go on for a second, what what I think this is an interesting, uh, you know, um, why this is interesting is that in the past, you know, we've always seen it being Republicans that race bait. We were talking before the show about the Willie Horton ad and things like that. And, you know, the great white whale of democratic electoral politics has always been how do we get minorities to show up in off-year elections? Uh, because they historically had low turnout, and this 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 now infamous ad, as well as just targeted outreach to these groups, I think is starting to show signs of working. And you know, even running some of these generic uh, white guy Democrats that picks up white white voters in the suburbs, and it also brings out these minorities. I think Democrats are starting to get at a winning strategy through race baiting, the way the Republicans did. Only now they are race baiting against whites. Whereas yeah. the Republicans were race baiting against minorities. Yeah. And also, we, we, to go back to our discussion last week, which I, I would encourage everyone to uh, to revisit if they haven't uh, listened to that uh, podcast yet. Uh, you have these, you know, the, a navel of the establishment, such as Ed Gillespie, effectively taking advantage of identity politics. Um, I was looking up the degree to which Gillespie actually talked about the monuments. Uh, He did make noises in that direction. He certainly didn't make it the focus of his campaign. Uh, He avoided talking about Trump quite noticeably. Some uh, observant uh, reporter was noticing that um, Gillespie was actually using words like last year's ticket or the administration, and he was not using Trump. Uh, and Ed Gillespie is Ed Gillespie. I mean, I, I, I don't believe he has ever won any kind of elected office. I believe you told me that, Hannibal. Uh, he, the only office he has won is the uh, chairman of the Republican National Convention. So he, he is a uh, you know, part of the old boys club. 
And uh, I, there's no reason to believe that were he governor, would he have been really that much better uh, on the issues that ultimately matter? I mean, as governor, you don't have have a tremendous amount of say in that matter. Uh, I bet he would have done a lot of redistricting uh, to help his Republican buddies get office. Uh, I bet if he were governor instead of Terry McAuliffe, he probably would have acted in a very similar fashion uh, during Charlottesville. Uh, so, but again, he benefited, uh, from this, 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 this channeling of whites into the Republican party as a bastion of normalcy. In fact, he probably would have lost by more if what you just described, Richard, hadn't happened. Yeah. This, because the thing is he wasn't set to, uh, he wasn't set to win at all period. And he was set to lose by a, a wider berth, a wider Trump margin. lost to Clinton by five points in Virginia. So. Right. And, and this guy, by not mentioning him, probably alienated a few people. And yeah. And our, our opening question about the, you know, the rallies and all that maybe having some impact. I mean, for people who aren't uh, um, well-versed in Virginia politics, the last time we had this go around uh, when McAuliffe was elected, McAuliffe is a Clinton operative uh, and not, not in a, you know, closeted way, very, very openly pro-Clinton, uh, has has made his whole career under Clinton. And the last time around, the Republican Party put up Ken Cuccinelli, who was our former, I think, Attorney General, right? Something yes, like Attorney General. And, uh, I mean, the, the, the parallel between him and Gillespie, not that Cuccinelli put up a better fight or anything, but just so people kind of grasp the personalities of these people. Um, Ken Cuccinelli is uh, Rick Santorum, and uh, and this guy is uh, is Jeb Bush. So they're both low energy, but but Cuccinelli was uh, was a social con, and this guy is a uh, you know Beltway um, uh, Beltway uh, consultancy class con. Mm-hmm. Both it, losing strategies, by the way. It, it is worth thinking about the midterms. Do we want to go there? Sure, why not? Okay, twenty eighteen. Um, one could make a very strong case for Democrats in twenty eighteen. And not even mention Donald Trump or race and demographics, actually. Uh, Structurally speaking, there is a clear trend for a quick reversal in the first term of a presidency. Uh, A notable exception to this was actually uh, George W. Bush in 2002. And remember, that this came after 9-11 when Bush's approval ratings were in the 90s. I mean, that, that was an exceptional point. And... Uh, four years later, he, he he effectively experienced his you know massive turnaround in 2006. But uh, the Republican Revolution, 1994, again the first midterm and the first term of a new president. Uh, the uh, of 2010, ditto. It was another Republican revolution. We're taking our country back. You can actually go back to in history. Um, FDR's first midterm, uh, very famous in this regard. So structurally speaking, uh, there is a major headwind for Republicans in 2018. That just is what it is. Uh, also, to look at this, you know, structurally and not not in terms of race and demographics and all the browning of America and all that stuff we talk about. Uh, there has just got to be a major correction to the stock market. I, I mean, I actually did think it was going to happen this fall. Um, we are going to be a decade outside of 2008 um, when there was, you know, well, this obviously is, we all remember this. You're getting into bonus content now. No, no, we'll, we'll go there. <laughs> we um, sell gold and bonus content. Wh- whatever, wh- whichever way causation occurs, um, 
a negative social mood is going to accompany a major stock market downturn. Um, I, I actually think the mood causes the downturn, but we, that is bonus content. We don't have to get into that. Uh, basically, there is going to be anger soon. There has got to be a major market correction. In 2007, on Halloween, the market peaked uh, just before leading up to a major crash in 2008. Very similar situation seems to be set up now. We had a major market peaks into uh, in uh, Halloween of this year, 2017. Consumer confidence rating is so high. People want to max out their credit cards at Christmas this uh, year. Yeah, and don't Everything, forget about the uh, real estate market. The real estate market, markets. too, has been going up and up and up. So all, everything is get, basically getting set up for some kind of crash. Uh, now, again, don't buy stock markets. St- don't buy stocks or sell your house or buy a house off my prognostication. I have, you should not do that. I am buy guns and gold. Buy, just <laughs> always do that. Yes. And Bitcoin, uh, hide Bitcoin under your mattress and you'll be safe. <laughs> uh, but th- this is the fact there, there are a lot of structural reasons to believe that the, the Republicans will lose in 2018. Now, when people have looked at individual con- congressional races, they have contradicted what I just said. Uh, but sometimes big structural factors overwhelm uh, individual factors like that. And again, this probably is going to be looked at as a bellwether. Uh, Northam was by no means a member of the resistance. He kind of talked like it a little bit here and there, but it's, he's kind of, you know, he's this boring liberal low energy white guy who's basically getting dragged along on this structural ride. But does it even matter if the Republicans lose big in 2018? Well, it's, it matters like, for them. I mean, of course, they'll be conquered. What do you mean? It matters for civilization or something? No, I, no mean, but... I mean, does it matter for Trump, I should say? Because he, it's not like he's been able to get much done with the Republican, with the, the power that he point. has. It's a fair point. Well, that's a very fair point. Do you want to take it? No, no. I just wanted to say that quickly. That it's it's, it, look, it's yeah. a fair point the, in the sense that are you really electing fundamentally different conservatives than who are there now. I mean, even, even so many he... people who are there now were elected in 2010 and then the echo of 2010 and 2012. So, I mean, it, it's not... There's no reason to believe that all of these people are going to do this. Now, there would be major implications if there is a 2018 reversal. Whether he deserves the blame or not, and he probably won't deserve the blame, uh, Bannon will basically have the Mickey taken out of him. He will be looked at as... He's at fault. He ran these loons. Uh, American Republican uh, Republic reje- American people rejected him. Uh, he he you know his star will will fall. That will be a major implication. Uh, what Donald Trump can do uh, in such a situation if one of the congressional houses is taken by Democrats is highly questionable. I mean, in a another timeline that we're living in, Donald Trump could be operating as the populist democratic leading republican who's like sound on immigration and foreign policy but wants to do big infrastructure bills and oh we're going to get socialized health care for everyone that is a potential timeline but it's not the one we're on so basically I mean, the, real, the one we're on the democrats aren't going to work the real the real question is how bad the republicans will lose in 2018 i mean there's no it doesn't seem like there's any possibility that they'll win big and get over two-thirds of the senate and somehow ram through uh the wall and anti you know muslim ban and all this stuff so uh how bad will the republicans lose um how much ground will i mean how much ground will they lose don 
Um, I, I'm not going to pretend I have the answers, but I do have an answer. Well, we all pretend opinion. that we have the answers. That's the point. <laughs> that is the literally, is the, the, literally point. the point <laughs> of this show. Uh, no, we just get around. We get together to smoke and drink and pretend. No, uh, my first comment before answering your question directly was to Richard's most recent answer. Um, that timeline that he suggests isn't that far-fetched, to be honest. I think he's been, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Trump post, I'm going to be very positive I'm not usually very positive on him. I'm not very sanguine on him on, in general, but I'm going to give him a lot of credit right now. Um, just roll with it. Um, I think that since his election, he has really tried to bend over backwards and work with congressional Republicans, even on issues about which he does not care. Yes. And he's done that with health care. He's done that with tax reform. He's done that with health care again once they flubbed it up the first time. Um, so I think... If this happens, this might not be the end of the world if the Democrats do take one or both chambers. I actually don't think um, – now I'm bleeding into your answer. I'm going to answer you jointly with this answer, Greg. Um, I actually don't think they'll take both houses. I think there is a distinct possibility that um, they may take the Senate, possibly. But even then, I've read prognostications from people who are in the know here in D.C. who um, who say that the Democrats have a chance to but will – mess it up some of the people they're putting up to fill these vacant republican seats uh are low energy to put to put it in the vernacular um the democrats probably will make gains in the house that's that's de- almost a definite but even then their margins the republican margins in the house are significant enough that the democrats would have to win a whole lot of seats to get um either to an even chamber or to to beat the republicans there so i think we have a very good chance of the Republicans keeping the House and losing the Senate or a, a slightly smaller chance of them keeping both houses just with smaller margins. And so how does that affect this timeline that, that Richard uh, kind of posited a moment ago? I think you could see Trump saying, you know what, uh, kind of like our Pontius Pilate discussion from the other day, I washed my hands from these from these cucked Republicans who really did do, did nothing to help me help them. Uh, and now we're going to work on things that, uh, like infrastructure, the trillion-dollar infrastructure plan that is both a populist Republican but also a very Democratic issue. He could do things like that. I don't. Th- I mean, socialized health care, he's come out so strongly against in the past that now it would In the be, recent past. In the recent past. Yes. It would be maybe political suicide to, to, to go that route. But yeah. then again, nothing is written in politics. Everything is possible. You just don't call it socialized <laughs> medicine as the right, first trick. Right, right. That's the first trick. <laughs> Denver, yeah, right. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, you but, know, but the tr- the infrastructure thing is very real. I think so. I mean, he Elaine Chao, um, he he nominated her DOT on purpose because she's the wife of Mitch McConnell, right? And she has very extensive maritime trade. Uh, her family is very big in the maritime trade in Taiwan, and I think he saw this as like a rebirth of you know American export and um, you know shipping and the merchant marine and and the infrastructure project would be you know, uh, run by Chow and pushed through Congress by McConnell. I, but I think he was being too hopeful. So uh, should Trump just uh, wait for the economy to, cl- to collapse and then ram through an infrastructure project? <laughs> <laughs> that That's one way of doing it, to be honest. I mean, I, I remember 2009, in January of 2009, where the, the, uh, for the first time a trillion dollars was used for a any kind of domestic bill. And it was, it, this was going to be just FDR all over again, you know, uh, former uh, lawyers and stockbrokers will be uh, digging ditches uh, in Omaha or something. I mean, th- there was a lot of 
talk like that. Yeah, I remember um, that. You know, it, none of that materialized. Uh, you know, I, I we just had to bail out the banks way. because they were, uh, yeah, they yeah, were too, too, such too big to fail. Too big to fail. <laughs> Well, you, you know, the lifeblood yeah. of our economy. Uh, but with Trump, I could see it. I mean, um, getting you know, we need to we need to make America great again. Rebuild infrastructure, put people to work, build a wall. Uh, yeah, I could see it. I mean, there there would be a way out for him, uh, and uh, it could happen fairly early in his term, uh, in a way that that he could recover from it. If if this happened in twenty nineteen or something, if there was a stock market crash in twenty nineteen. Uh, there is effectively no hope for a re-election. That would indicate a major negative social mood that where it's throw the bums out. I think you could see Democrats controlling all three branches. So uh, going back to uh, shifting fire here, back to the governor and back to local Virginia politics, uh, how will how will the new governor uh, Northam affect the ongoing uh, litigation over Charlottesville? I don't know. Or will he? Will it just be more I, I, the same? I don't know if he'll affect it at all. I mean, he, he does seem to be a moderate Democrat. I mean, whatever you want to say about George W. Bush, I mean, I generally loathe the guy. He voted for him twice, meaning that he is a middle-of-the-road, you know, um, American patriotard, effectively, who's who's now a Democrat. I It just... I don't think it will really change much of anything. Perhaps you could say Terry McAuliffe just by the fact that he's connected with the Clintons means he's that he's, yeah. means that he's admirably, uh, from one perspective, just utterly ruthless and maniacal and Machiavellian. <laughs> <laughs> and this, <laughs> this is a certain respect. <laughs> <laughs> but um, maybe he was the one who actually came up with the plan and not the uh, dope in Charlesville, Mike Siner. But uh, I, do, I don't think it will affect it much of anything. But the guy does just seem to me to be low energy less just totally insane uh and and you know yeah, we, we have this odd situation now where uh we have a democratic governor of virginia and a republican governor hogan in maryland yeah. so. although hogan's been i mean let's be honest he has an r after his name but has he done anything even remotely traditionally republican no right i mean i would have did i vote for him or the other guy um the other the guy who ran against him the democrat last year i forget his name uh, there was a scandal because uh, apparently he uh, went to his high school son's like beach uh, beach week and went showed up to a bunch a uh, house party with a bunch of eighteen year olds. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's pretty Chad. <laughs> yeah. Was, yeah, well, you know, if very I could, Chad. Yeah. If I could, Greg, to go back to uh, the Virginia elections, uh, you know, we were talking a lot about socializing things earlier, but we actually elected a card-carrying member of the Democratic Socialists of America oh, are you to talking the House about, of Delegates uh, today. Th- this isn't this the tranny. This is two, 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 two wings of radicalism. Ernst Rome. Yes. Yeah, no, 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 this is no, not Commander no. Ream. Uh, <laughs> no, no, but there was a, I, there was a Democrat... With her, with her feminine penis? Yes. Yes. There, was a, <laughs> there was a Democrat elected that was a card-carrying member of the DSA, as well as, uh, as, well as this tranny... And actually, for the tranny, you know, uh, Alex Kurtajik had a had a great uh, response on Twitter, where he said, you know, this has to be uh, some sort of you know Gordian knot for a lot of these feminists and what have you, because intersectionally, you know, they've got to support this tranny. But what they've actually done is elect a white ma- a white male who prefers <laughs> to identify <laughs> as a woman. White male. <laughs> 
Is this, is this the is 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 this the new guys white we supremacy just, is taking? So, they're so much winning. <laughs> so much winning. All right. Uh, exit question: Who is Cliff Hira? Uh, he was the. Uh, it's pronounced Hydra, and uh, no, just kidding. He, uh, he it's Cliff Hira. He was the libertarian. Candidate. I'm disappointed that you know that. Uh, <laughs> I I was looking at the. Um, at the results, and I, I, I noticed it. But you I, noticed that little that little sliver of one point one percent. He got around ten thousand votes or something. Uh, there are like, 10, Google 000, says thirty thousand right oh, now. Thirty thousand. I take that back. I mean, they're, they're I mean, out of like two point well, five million cast. Still, that's thirty thousand people who are silly, Alex Jones. childless. No, probably not Alex Jones. No, actually, um, they're, they're silly, childless nerds living in Boston. And Clarendon and Swipple uh, policy analysts. Yeah, doing doing some kind of you know tranny economic policy or something like that, and and for the Washington machine. I kind of think before we move on that we should talk about this tranny thing one in one more aspect of it. Just <sighs> it's hard not it. to. I mean, it's one thing I think people should remember is the guy that she beat or he. Sorry, geez, I'm getting zogged as we speak. Well, okay, let me interject. Please, is it more do. or less insulting? to refer to this person as a she. I mean, she, air quotes, she chooses to be identified by those. So therefore... So I, I really want to use the opposite of... Or him. No, I, Orc sir with I, an X. I guess, <laughs> I, I guess I am for objective truth. Like, you have a Y chromosome in every one of your cells. Yeah, right, but the you're a pair, little girl. So you are... You are, <laughs> you are a little girl. Uh, <laughs> Hold my beard. <laughs> no, so I mean, the comment I wanted to make, regardless of his or her gender, is the following... She, he, she beat an 11-term, 25-year uh, incumbent that was very well-liked by the community that was at the... Uh, I mean, he was the, the originating legislator for a ton of um, Virginia legislation that is still in use today. Um, and he was, again, uh, to use the meme, a fucking white male, an older, he, distinguished-looking gentleman he who... He wrote the Virginia constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage so uh, i think that's, that's so this something. is deeply symbolic yeah what just happened yeah i mean we it's fun to make jokes about danica ream or room however you pronounce it uh but yeah it, it actually is deeply big symbolic deal. for for what virginia has become Issue two, 
Saudi Arabia. The kingdom is on edge. This week, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman arrested dozens of senior officials and oligarchs, most of whom, coincidentally, were his cousins. The pretense for the arrests was corruption, a word which is easy to conflate with business. More likely, bin Salman intends to rein in potential political rivals, including Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, one of the world's richest men. Bin Talal also bears an uncanny resemblance to Don Corleone. Also among the sacked were Adel Faqih, the economy minister, and Prince Mitlab bin Abdullah, the head of the National Guard. The detainees are being held at the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton. Don Camillo, uh, how much would you like to be held at the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton? So, the Riyadh Against your will. (laughs) The Riyadh Ritz-Carlton is generally considered the the go-to location for uh, American and European and other other Western uh, expats that that have to, by choice or by force, stay in Riyadh overnight. Um, but if anyone among our listeners who's uh, followed this question a little bit more closely has seen the recent images that was put that were put out, um, I don't remember which of the wire services or which of the major papers um, got access to these pictures. But they they now have inside pictures of what the hallways of the erstwhile Ritz of Riyadh looked like before this uh, this palace coup. Um, now it's full of like sandbags and all the Persian rugs have been rolled up against the wall and their armed guards that are just. That, that walk up and down the hallways to keep the 60 or so royal detainees in their rooms. So it's no longer open to the public. It's become like a like the Bastille originally was in Paris, meaning a high-end prison. All right. Um, is there a... Do you think there's like a, a... Is this... I mean, okay, his original story is that this is uh, a... It's corruption. I mean, of course, nobody cares about corruption anywhere in the world, the U.S. included. I hate when – digression. I hate when U.S. uh, Washington mandarins pretend that the Russian military-industrial complex is so corrupt. Oh, really? How come they don't have to pay a trillion dollars on a frickin' uh, fighter jet program? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, screw you guys. Anyway. Especially coming at a time when – I'd love to go down that digression with you sometimes because we have some great stories. Do you know about the fat man of Singapore? Have have you heard this story? No, let's 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 tease this thread out. Go ahead. Okay, so this guy, this guy's great. I read about this the first time through Normie sources, and I didn't have the full picture. It came out in I might have been on the West Coast, might have been the LA Times. I don't remember, but it was this this fat Matisse, half white, half Malay, Singaporean, and his name now eludes me. I'm sure one of our more uh, spurgy listeners can probably look it up and and post what an what an idiot I am in the uh, in the in the comments. Um, so he's a third or fourth generation shipping magnate uh, of, of relatively local stature, small stature, used to be a, a, a small and medium enterprise in that country up until he inherited it in his 40s um, from his father. And the first thing he did was he started getting a lot of U.S. admirals and other flag officers kind of wetting their beaks in his affairs to make sure that, you know, if enough star wearing uh, scrambled egg scrambled egg wearing americans were involved in his schemes that yeah fruit salad no scrambled eggs the the, the things on your brim oh oh okay well the fruit salad is this that's yeah that's fruit yeah. salad the, the brim stuff the navy is scrambled eggs yeah okay uh, so if enough of those fags are in in on your stuff and you kind of hold them by the by the you know what then you're kind of you're kind of uh at less at risk of prosecution the way he would do it is he'd get all these guys 
to his house. He had this magnificent manor overlooking the rest of Singapore, and he would invite them to basically very upscale orgies. There'd be, you know, ladyboards as far as the eye could see, and caviar and oysters. Uh, Marines are always Marines, huh? All those Marines, yeah. So anyway, that, that would go on, and then while that was going on, he would refuel the ships in his in his dry berths or whatever whatever goes on uh in the world of, of of shipping and the thing is is he would he would charge the navy for something like i don't know some obscene number like you know a hundred thousand metric tons of fuel for a ship that can only take like you know 60 or something and that's how he would make his money and whenever you know lower you know second lieutenants or whatever in the in the back room who are doing the accounting would uh, would bring this up? They would be immediately silenced and bumped up a rank, and being like, "Hey, man, like this isn't for your eyes only." So America, so yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is petty bullshit no, compared right to now, what not ninety U.S. admirals are currently under review in this in this case. Again, petty bullshit compared to the rest of Washington. But let's 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 go back to our headline here: um, corruption. So nobody believes that this is on account of corruption. It's either an internal power play. Or is it some kind of external influenced power play? It's the former influenced by the latter. Um, I'll give I'll give our our boys a little background. Um, MBS wasn't the initial Mohammed bin Salman, right? Sorry, Crown Prince of Arabia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. wasn't initially the Crown Prince. His father, King Salman, is the last of the brothers to be king of Saudi Arabia after the initial founder Ibn Saud in the 30s. Ibn Saud and all his illustrious, uh, air quotes, illustrious, um, what's the opposite of predecessors? Progeny. Not not progeny, his brothers. What do you say? uh, The opposite of predecessors. Successors. Successors. Have all been brothers. So the the, um, succession in Saudi Arabia has been um, horizontal, not vertical. That's a rather rare situation in modern monarchies. I can't think of another cognate elsewhere. Uh, Um, Yeah. Kievan Rus would be the other. My, the the yeah. keyword being modern, modern. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Th- thank you. Uh, <laughs> so, but what's interesting? So all the all the guys, you know, um, Ibn Saud, um, King Fahd, King Abdullah, and now King Salman. And I'm probably missing a few in between. These guys uh, were all brothers of the same father, and there has not yet been a vertical um, succession. This brother, King Salman, the current king of Saudi Arabia, is the last of that lineage. So at some point, sooner rather or later, that question would have to be answered. The crown prince up to, you know, three, four months ago was a man by the name of Mohammed bin Nayed. Uh, Nayef, I'm sorry, Nayef. Mohammed bin Nayef, who, again, is one of the cousins. The Saudi royal family has reportedly some four or 5,000 minor princelings here and there. So there was a lot to go around. Mohammed bin Nayef is in his 50s. Um, you know, he's been a, a, a palace, uh, a Mandarin, as Greg put it earlier. He's been, a he was born and raised in that ambiance. He's held multiple, um, portfolios as minister of this, that, and the other thing. Most recently, the National Guard, um, which has some importance in, in that structure. And then suddenly, you know, Trump went, did his first, uh, official trip abroad as president to Riyadh. Um, ostensibly to create, I remember the, uh, the the talking points at the time was to uh, basically two things were on his agenda: to isolate Iran by any means necessary and to defeat ISIL. Not necessarily in that order. I think the defeat of ISIL came first, but both of those questions could be more easily answered by Washington if Washington could create a pan GCC. GCC is the Gulf Cooperation Council. It's this loose federation of six. Um, Sunni Arab monarchies in the Gulf 
that are directly abutting territorial Iranian waters. Those are uh, Kuwait, Bahrain, uh, Qatar or Qatar, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Oman. Um, so anyway, Trump goes there thinking he can get these guys together to powwow together to create some sort of Arab NATO, if you will. And uh, as soon as he, you know, it goes very well. The, the, the Saudis shower him lavishly with all these sorts of... This is, uh, we all remember the uh, pictures of Trump and the king of Saudi Arabia and... And Marshall, um, Phil and, Marshall Sisi, the, yeah, the Cici, president of yeah, Egypt. Yeah. Holding the, the globe. The orb, the mystical yeah, the, the orb. The glowing orb. Right, yeah. and the sword dancing and all that jazz. So when as soon as that happened, Trump came away from that thinking he had scored. And I think he, I think he wouldn't be wrong in, in thinking this. He scored a major you know, optics victory. People said it went relatively well. His speech on Islam and the Muslim world was surprisingly well received, even by Cucks writing in the New York Times and stuff. Um that being said, the internal Saudi politics were deeply affected by this visit because it was taken by the Riyadh sphere as being an implicit endorsement of business as usual in Saudi Arabia. Saudi, you are now our go-to guy in the region. What you say goes, we'll follow you in whatever crazy adventure you're you're going into. They're currently involved in a war in Yemen. We supply weapons for that. Um, so do the Brits, the French, all, all other Western allies. We the Saudis mis mistook misunderstood Trump's openness to them as carte blanche. So very soon after his return to the United States from Riyadh, MBS Mohammed bin Salman, who was then a prince but not the crown prince, staged a bloodless but but still very aggressive coup, and he did so by taking his cousin MBN Mohammed bin Nayef into a, into a palace, locking him in, surrounding him by his very own national guard. Uh, of which uh, NBN had been the minister. And let's let's clarify here. So National Guard in Saudi Arabia is not like National Guard in the U.S. National Guard in the U.S. is militia that can be federalized. Right. And, this, you're right to specify. Right, and, a little more formal. National Guard in Saudi Arabia is kind of like the SS or the uh, the. There are the political like I think shock you're giving troops. Them a lot more credit. Well, than yes. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're, they are the internal security apparatus. For those of you who aren't American and who have or who have been to countries that have a, a civil law code, these are reminiscent of continental European police forces that have a military police, like the gendarmerie or the carabinieri or the guardia civil. So that's what these guys are. They're I was going to compare them to uh, Saddam's Republican Guard. You know what? I think, and I may be wrong, I think the Saudis have something that's a, half a step above the... They have the uh, yeah. yeah, they have something else. Anyway, so yeah, that's what happened. MBS took over. Now, instead of it, it, it went very well for him. There was no blood. MBN was forced to step down. He pledged allegiance in this very staged, shaky, uh, spoken uh, and videotaped uh, pledge of allegiance to his much younger cousin, um, MBS, for reference sake, is like in his early 30s. He's a young guy. Maybe even 31, I think I may have read somewhere. So anyway, he's right. a young guy. And, um, but this is the, the, that's, that's the situation inside of Riyadh. Outside of Riyadh, how is this perceived? You would think that a palace coup in the world's largest producer and exporter of crude oil would be source of alarm for us on the other side of the purchasing chain for energy. That being said, this guy has um, portrayed himself as a modernist, portrayed himself as a reformer, portrayed himself as, you know, I'm the millennial now, so don't worry, guys. Like, I'm I'm operating in your intellectual wheelhouse. We're all on the same page here. The young Saudi. 
instead of right. the young Turk. Yeah, the young Turk. Exactly. Yeah. And you you aren't far off uh, Hannibal. That's that's basically what's going on. Um, so people didn't react that violently. Uh, oil prices didn't drop, and if they did, I think they only dropped for like half a trading day. They came right back up again. Um, and Washington and the Europeans are looking on in with interest because the other major point that uh, Mohammed bin Salman is known for, besides this this kind of thuggish taking over of power, is Vision 2030. Vision 2030 is this very ambitious, um, multi-decade, multi-generational, socioeconomic revamping of the landscape in Saudi Arabia. Wait, you're telling me the Saudi Arabians have a long-term plan looking over 10 years ahead? The five-year plan, like uh, back in the good old days. Well, I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying. We, no, no, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't, like, right. we don't have that in the U.S. <laughs> well, because we haven't achieved uh, full fascism yet. Uh, give us, uh, we got, we got Don Senior for two terms, Don Junior for two terms, and then we'll get Baron. And you know, then. Well, I call, recall reading actually about this plan. You know, they were aggressively investing right. in things like artificial intelligence and Th- that is that's a tangential yeah. aspect. Right. It's the one that gets a lot of well, uh, right. Obviously, you know, I, I I don't pay that much attention. I remember it popping up on. You're right. That's my a, that news, and it was the, uh, so sort of fascinating. Essence, it's it is um, trying to diversify the economy and move away from. Fossil fuels, obviously, because we all know that there is a there is some sort of uh, deadline on when, if and when fossil fuels will continue uh, forever or not. And so, Vision Twenty Thirty, it's um, doubling down on the the mineral extraction industry, but but not necessarily exclusively oil. Some liquid natural gas, uranium, gold, um, also tourism, also the creation. Hannibal pointed out uh, AI, the creation of this super modern city. One of those planned cities like Brasilia or Angora uh, or, or Washington, D.C., for that matter, in which everything would be, you know, very super modern with robot cops. Um, one of the more lulzy triggering moments for women that, that occurred during this most recent iteration of the Saudi plan was they created a sentient AI female robot cop. And the Saudis gave her honorary citizenship. So this robot, this female robot, basically has more rights than most Saudi women. Like she doesn't wear a hijab; she can drive. It's 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 pretty lulls. So they're um, robot Sharia, robot Sharia now. Um, but what's funny is Saudis people don't realize this. I didn't even realize this until relatively recently. They have the highest per capita um, electronic presence. They're on more social media per head than anyone else. That's why you see Arabic hashtags trending in Twitter. Exactly, right. So these people that have nothing to do with their lives, they can't go out and drink or dance, they can't mix genders, they don't even like each other. So like people from the eastern province or mostly Shia don't get along with people from the west anyway. So they stay at home and they they are basement dueling meats, basically. They they, they get subsidies from the state. They're, they get their tendies, their... their, their um, well, Sharia, they're, yeah, they're, they're Sharia they're... compliant tendies, and they're halal tendies, and then they they just shit post online. So that's what they do. So that's version twenty thirty. Um, and... Sounds great. So and... Don, does this does this affect you know like sort of uh, basement dwelling jihadis? You know, you think of someone like Osama bin Laden. You know, this rich this rich young man who right. who is bored and is. Basically, starting revolution because of ennui. I mean, basically, I can't what, imagine anybody wanting to do ennui. that. <laughs> so, I don't know if you had any more pointy questions. I can go on. I think uh, you asked if it was externally motivated or internally motivated. Yeah, we got the internal motivation. Is this the? Can we just to put it bluntly? Uh, are the Clintons behind this? <laughs> 
Um, they do have very significant proven ties to certain factions in Saudi Arabia. I don't know what uh, if we can actually point, pinpoint them to this. What I do know is the stated goal of wiping out corruption is BS because we, I mean, you pointed this out well in the beginning, Greg. We all know it's BS. It comes at a time when uh, Mohammed bin Salman has to convince his Western interlocutors in Washington and Brussels and elsewhere that he's the right guy for the job. Right. Well, it's sort of funny and, that he would that he would even admit that he was cracking down on corruption because can you imagine a Western government ever saying, we're cracking down on corruption? Right. Because they would implicitly right. acknowledge that there is such a thing in a Western country. I think it's so widespread there. It's uh, It would be hard to imagine them being self-conscious about it. You know what I mean? Like, you're right. It does implicitly imply that there are... But everyone knows, even from from the king down to the last, you know, taxi cab driver in, in Riyadh. So I think the the corruption charges haven't been formalized. They, none of these guys have been charged. Uh, there is no, I mean, habeas corpus or due process the way we understand it here. Yeah, I'm surprised they're not, like, being held in a dungeon, being tortured. That's no, the usual I mean, oriental way, right? <laughs> that is. Uh, uh, Damascus is famously known for, no, sorry, Amman. Amman, Jordan is famously known for its uh, fingernail factory. That is a uh, a prison that is mostly underground. Except oh, but I thought they were the good-based Arabs who were our friends. Yeah, the GID, the General Intelligence Directorate. Their their uh, their their CIA has this prison in the center, literally on purpose, just to trigger passerby's. Uh, a prison that they call the Fingernail Factory because it's mostly underground, but they leave a small window so people can hear the screams of those whose nails are being pulled. <laughs> Touching. So that's Jordan, a close U.S. ally. No, they're being kept. They're being kept in. Uh, they're being kept in the like you pointed out earlier, the Riyadh Ritz, because he doesn't really need to kill them or or browbeat them any further. He's won. This guy effectively MBS. He's won. He has the support of his father, who's king. Uh, until his natural or or violent death. Um, This guy, because he's now Crown Prince, officially will be the successor. There is no succession crisis anymore. He is assured to be king. And he has Trump's ear, so that's he doesn't need to browbeat them. He just needs them out of the country or or destitute, one or the other. This all sounds very good that uh, Saudi Arabia is getting some fresh blood, I suppose. Blood of the martyrs? Yeah, um, but I wanted to quickly talk about uh, one of the arrested. Uh, this is uh, Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, who's uh, the world's 45th richest man. And uh, he owns the world's 65th largest yacht. And Richard, you'll find this interesting. So Al-Walid owns the, the private yacht, uh, 65th largest private yacht in the world, the uh, 85-meter Kingdom 5KR. Now, the history of this yacht is interesting. In 1983, uh, owned by so-and-so, it appeared as the Flying Saucer, uh, the yacht of James Bond's villain, Largo, in Never Say Never Again. Yes, It's the uh, Disco Volante, the Flying Saucer, yes. I actually have... (laughs) Now we have your attention. (laughs) I I now have something to add to this discussion. Uh, I actually have somewhere in my closet, it might be in Montana, a uh, a novelty uh, disco volante T-shirt. That's awesome. That uh, that that's that's a replica of. What, you should what wear it tomorrow. I, I I need to order a new one. I, I I had this a while, but yeah, maybe we can sell these on our all like the crew members. That's awesome. Exactly, the that's crew very members cool. wore them in Thunderball. Yes. Uh, and other interesting facts about I this this uh, yacht's <laughs> uh, history. It was then owned by Donald Trump, who renamed it the Trump Princess. 
And uh, then Al Waleed bought it from Trump uh, after uh, his financial problems in the late 80s. Another uh, yacht-related comment that has to do with what we're talking about. I'll riff off of your your, uh, Talal comment. Um, MBS is the current and proud owner of the world's largest yacht. And this Mm. happens, so just a few days after he took over, he announced a whole battery of austerity measures for his people. Because, you know, you know, hey, guys, we have to prepare the, uh, the big transition that we have for you. That very same day, he and his, his homme d'affaires, his businessman that he sent to Monaco for him, he bought a $500 million yacht the same day he announced austerity measures. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oriental in, despots know how to rub it in. <laughs> Semites are Semites. <laughs> how large is that thing? That's a good question. I Do presume it a, has a pool. I should hope so. I mean, any any self respecting auto. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come on, Richard. <laughs> oh man! Wow. All right. Well, uh, exit question. So, when the Saudi regime finally falters and starts to break up, what power will take Mecca? I ask you, Hannibal. Obviously, the uh, Ottoman Empire resurgent upon a upon a upon a Recep Tayyip Erdogan sends uh, yes. Turkish Marines yes. to the Red Sea and storms Mecca and becomes Sharif al Harmain. Yes, yes, he declares <laughs> himself badass. the new Caliph. Uh, Istanbul becomes capital again before we retake it in the glory in our glorious crusade. But yes, the Ottoman Empire, obviously. Good answer, uh, Richard. Uh, I'm actually going to pick up on a meme that you put in my head, and that is the. Uh, the alt-right endorsement of, well, not endorsement, but understanding of ISIS as a natural political formation for the desert world. Uh, we, it's obviously not a natural or su- successful political formation for our world, but it actually works there. So, yes, I believe ISIS or something like it. Some, uh, will, some uh, Bedouin or some terrorist Bedouin conglomerate yes. in the, you mean the Levant, Hejaz area. <laughs> well, will... but the Saudi royal family is very different. You're right. Uh, in, in something, in the Saudi royal family, obviously... They're docile is, and soft. Yeah, they're docile and soft <laughs> and, and extremely uh, you know, decadent and, right, and also right, right. deeply connected with America through the sure. oil uh, situation. Uh, I think something uh, very different might come in its wake. And that so would be... Your, for... I, I don't look with... I don't have a sanguine outlook towards Arab nationalism, even though... Uh, those are the regimes that I naturally sympathize with. Right. Um, I, I, I don't think that is I don't think that kind of fascism uh, or European style hegemony and sovereignty is natural in the Middle East. You'd be right. Uh, ethnographers and anthropologists would would 100 percent agree with you on that. Don, who will take Mecca after the dis- th- dissolution I, of Saudi power? I think the two previous answers we've gotten from Richard and, and Hannibal are dead on for the short term. I think first, uh, al-Baghdadi, the Mossad agent come caliph, uh, takes takes uh, Mecca from, from the Saudis. Hello, Akbar. <laughs> and then I think that uh, Erdogan decides to, in the name of Islam, in the name of the protection of the people, he becomes the uh, commander of the faithful, rushes down through collapsing Syria and Jordan, saves Mecca from the, from the, the ISIL, and then finally, it the end goal, the, the Enzig, is going to be Rome. Because Arabia Felix and Arabia Petraea were provinces of, of Rome. Rome will rise again. Uh, 
Okay, so you, yeah, you're I guess referring to we're bleach nationalism now. We need to uh, take back the, the the literal, not not literal, littoral, literal of the Mediterranean and the Red Sea uh, because they are their international trade choke points. Right, and, and, and Egypt is ours. And the Arabs do have this are. tendency of referring to Westerners indiscriminately as Arum. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Or Al Faranj, the Franks, the Rum or the Franks. Yeah. True. So either way, we win. That's a that's a good answer. Uh, but the correct answer is, of course, uh, Israel. <laughs> will take <laughs> Mecca back and uh, restore Islam to its, uh, you know, correct uh, formulation. Halachic formulation. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is the, oh, the... Who was the woman who uh, came up with that theory? Uh, uh, Crone. Uh, what was her first name? She was an Orientalist, uh, British Orientalist. I forget her first name, but her, uh, Crone. She, she wrote a, a hypothesis that Islam was basically just Judaism in a evangelistic form, she's not yes. wrong, and uh, she's not wrong. Yeah, it's uh, certainly a so the eternal take. Anglo gave it back to the eternal Jew. <laughs> yes, yes. Issue 3, Texas Shooting. November 5th, a gunman opened fire on a Baptist church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. The spree killed 26 and wounded 20. Gun control, mental health, all the usual points have been trotted out. These shootings are now de rigueur. The media narratives all presuppose that there is an easy way to prevent them. If only we knew his motives. There were warning signs, but they were ignored. If only the Air Force had put his name on the FBI's watch list. What is the fundamental problem here, Richard? I think the fundamental problem is a general despondency in the modern world, certainly among whites, but I I think it actually infects all people. And we can see this general angst, this great hole in our souls uh, through a number of different phenomena. Uh, the white death is certainly one of them. The very shocking increase in suicide. Uh, whites are sleeping more. Whites are watching TV more. Uh, whites are more tattooed, more into drugs, more into a degenerate lifestyle. Uh, we can see this in the opioid ec- epidemic. And, and I think we can see it in mass shootings like this. Um, there have been sick people like this in the past, and they did not engage in these shocking, sadistic, uh, uh, utterly inhuman uh, type acts. Uh, you know, I, I and and again, I, I think there there is something to the fact that. Uh, this was a First Baptist church. It was effectively a small town uh, white church, 
And there is something to the fact and perhaps that there was a political motive. Perhaps there was a there uh, has to be at least some motive, even if it's an overlay of the you know some have called this some I think jumped on the bandwagon, including our own website of the the Antifa killer. That's not quite true, although he he was a atheist of some sort. Uh, and so you know there, it's not like the, the a motive a political or ideological motive isn't isn't absent. It obviously is there, even if it's just overlaid. But but I I I, I think we have to stare into the abyss of the modern soul. Uh, this is it. Uh, there were sick people like this in the past, and they did not get, engage in acts of just this kind of shocking depravity. I'm going to propose that the like fundamental... transsexuals being elected to office. Yeah. There have it, been sexually it, right. sick people in the past, but they were either medicated or locked up and not given free reign. Um, this or they were, the, they were their, direct, their sickness was directed in a, a more... In a more constructive yes. manner that is an antisocial but part and parcel of society. I think Richard hit it on the, uh, the nail on the head. There is no other way to read this than the, 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 the absolutely existential spiritual sickness the morass in which we currently exist. I think the, um, and that, that's a general comment, the specific comment. I think the MSM is, is um, framing this as he exchanged angry phone calls and texts with his former mother-in-law. So I think it, um, I think it began as a personal vendetta and then blossomed into like what Richard just said. He had, um, socio-religio-political views that were uh, favorable to shooting up a majority white, basic mainline Protestant church. I'm going to posit that the real, the ursache of all this is uh, sexual. And that is you have many, many young men in this country who have no purpose in life, no place in life, no job, no career, nothing, and have no prospect thereof. And they even if they can get it together enough to like go out with a girl or have some like pump and dump, like hookup, it's like, that is just so like dehumanizing and demeaning and, and pointless and stupid. And, and this person was a, a kind of like horror movie version of a man. Yeah. And, and uh, you're going to, you know, he... for every, for, and of course for every like thousand guys that are in that position, only, you know, one will turn out like this right. guy. But, but he, he was a kind of cartoonish horror movie version of a traditional male. Uh, he, 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 I, he attacked, um, the, his stepson, uh, who was an infant and, uh, actually, uh, broke the skull of an infant. I mean, I mean, I, stuff that, I don't think anyone can imagine doing anything like that. There was another anecdote about his life of he was uh, fiercely beating a dog in the trailer park uh, where he lived. Uh, again, uh, what kind of sick person does that uh, effectively? He was actually cited for animal cruelty by the police. That's how bad it was. Uh, it wasn't like he kicked the dog because mm-hmm. he was mad. It, this was this is a very deeply sick person who, who did become a, a kind of like photographic negative of what a man should be. Uh, yes, uh, I think you're absolutely right. I I I think um, uh, also I, I mean our race is is degenerating um, into people like this. I think the wages of materialism, to an extent, are death. Uh, you know, this is, and I say this, um, you know, I, I'm sure Christians will appreciate that this, but I think all 
all people of our race and all peoples actually should think about this when when you when we've lived in such a technologically advanced society and we've become alienated in a certain way our minds have degenerated to become tools and when i say tools i don't mean that in a good way it's almost as if the all the all the all the aspects of what make us human our souls so to speak have been pushed back and crunched down because of this sort of dystopian society that we live in well yeah Hannibal, of course, uh, puts it very poetically and uh, spiritually. Uh, I would put it simply biologically. Uh, not only is there, there fewer at prospect, less of a prospect of, of reproduction for a lot of people, um, but there's also there's no community. So what do you what do you expect is going to happen? I think that your biological answer is indissociable from mm-hmm. Hannibal's. I think I mean that's one thing that we. As as whites, as as Greco-Roman, philosophically grounded, and and even as Helleno-Christian-based people, every every intellectual and religious tradition I just mentioned, uh, covered by those umbrella terms, speak to this um, deep the necessity to marry the material with the spiritual. And I think that the because of course, what is the alternative to that? Um, the purely spiritual becomes, uh, you know, it's it's negating of of essence of it's the negating of materialism. It's the negating of life. It, it's actually quite uh, it is a death cult. And the and the opposite is true as well. Pure materialism, one hundred percent denying of anything greater than than existence, than eating, sleeping, and and perhaps reproducing, is also stultifying. So I think both of your answers uh, actually conjugate well together to create the ultimate answer, which is that the spiritual void left by you know maybe two or three generations of really shitty parenting have left this biological hole, which we you know no pun intended ha- have yet to fill. Or <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll just kind of let that hang. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it was a joke, but it isn't. It actually isn't. It's like, for example, look at Japan. During the war, or even immediately thereafter, um, the Japanese people were vital with a capital V in the true sense of that word. They were they were vital in the sense that they had a a plurimillennial civilization, um, indig- you know, partially influenced by China, but mostly indigenous. Uh, very proud of its traditions, hierarchical, patriarchal, beautiful art, and that was reciprocated. That was reflected into their biology. They reproduced, they had families, they had very august lineages that they kept extensive uh, record of. And today, you know, 40% of Japan is is a virgin, self-reported virgins, and they're fine with that. Yeah, the hikamori phenomenon, for instance, well over a million young men, uh, hikamori is a term, I don't know what it exactly translates to, but it's basically shut in. It's, you know, it's like a, a neat that's not even funny, but one that is, uh, you know, no, I mean, it's a real it's sad tragic, situation. Yeah. It's to the point where, you know, this is a recognized cultural phenomenon in Japan, and not even in a strange way, it's just something that that is there and i'm sure it's it has come to us in the broader west or however you want to think about it you know the it's the de- it's the other side of developed nations actually that phrase developed if i could go on it go on for a second the the idea that something is developed it's it's what it what that phrase says to us is that a circle has ended it is done you are developed it is the end of something True. therefore uh you know it's it's the last man the final homogenous society so to speak 
we talked a second ago about how you know poor spiritual uh, raising of children have perhaps left this biological hole. But I would actually maybe I think the chicken and the egg they're both valid. I think the biological the the, the dearth of young men the gr- the grotesque killing of of young white men in both world wars the brother wars as we call them in the all right have may also have impacted this spiritual void so again biology impacts uh sociology and spirituality and vice versa all right let's ask the real hard question here so the the media narrative uh i mean the media rightly points out that the uh that there are uh, something like 300 million firearms in the u.s uh and uh we have a much higher proportion of mass killings. If you look at number of people, you know, number of incidents where four or more people are killed, uh, wouldn't it just be easier if we just got rid of guns? Well, I, I think maybe your question is, are we going to see major gun control legislation no, no, I, well, in our lifetime? No, I mean, is, is major gun control, uh, a solution here? Um, look, uh, I, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll take this one. If you uh, like. Look, I, I do think that... I mean, it, it is like... Yes, I, mean, I do yeah, think is, a it, serious gun control legislation... Let's the, put it, uh, we've heard this over and over from conservatives that all this means is that the law-abiding won't have guns and the unlawful will have guns, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But look, let, let's get real. If we controlled all of those guns, I think a situation like this is far, far, far less likely than it is today. Is that, that is just simply... The, the, a fact but the other this qu- person the would have is... done a bad thing no question he would have attacked his dog he would have attacked his his wife's child those are terrible things but, uh, the but question he would is, not is have this, shot up a church is, is that a price fact. that we're is that a price we're willing to pay as a society well i mean again it's like america is this weird society that that's rural and postmodern at the same time without having civilizational urbanity in between <laughs> uh it, it 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 there are there is this like deep Rootin' tootin' cowboy culture that you see in Texas, uh, most certainly all over the place. Uh, there, you, you see it in Virginia uh, to a very large degree. Um, uh, you know, on the other hand, um, it, it's not again. It's not so much that America is urban, like you know the great you know cities. It, it, it is more of a, a postmodern mm-hmm. suburbia where people live in this like simulated urban virtual reality effectively and and for those people it's like oh why would anyone need a gun like i live in a uh in, in a subdivision and i commute to work every day in a glass box um i i don't see urban crime why would i want a gun outside of hunting um and then on the other hand there is this uh, re- uh you know residual uh earthy and in many ways very healthy culture um, that is still that that is still there in America, and I think that has been lost in in Europe to a great degree. Uh, you see it out west, the culture of the rodeo, of the cowboy, of of the hunter, and so on. We're in this very strange situation um, where those people um, also do cling to their guns. I mean, Obama was correct to a certain extent. That is the kind of last stand that they're taking, uh, culturally speaking. Um, is is the gun issue? I would, so I would you're in a very you're in a very strange, chance, ambiguous. Chance situation. To answer my own question. I would formulate it this way: it, to say, like, let's take away all 
guns in 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 uh in response to the uh you know shooting mass shooting epidemic that we've had crescendoing since the 90s or even since the late 80s uh would be like to say all right well we have diversity the solution is let's you know exterminate group x it's just it's like it's it's yeah that's right sure autistically and logically that's the easiest that's like well a better analogy a better analogy is this is the conservative response to diversity which is more prisons uh which is a greater surveillance state militarized police etc yeah okay so that that. it's, it's basically this mask on top of the problem the fact is if we had an all-white country we could actually have a country with a certain gun culture but again i i guess i'll just say it it's it's like yes i think gun crimes are less likely if we take away all the guns that that is just a fact uh but you know again i want to live in a country where there is that connection to an older way. It was funny. We were actually here in the apartment. I, I don't think you were here, Don Camillo, but um, uh, uh, Hannibal and Greg and um, uh, and Carolus Rex were here. We were actually watching this um, funny YouTube video with uh, the um, boy, boy, Boothroyd, the, this man who uh, inspired Ian Fleming to give... Uh, James Bond, a Walter PPK in his uh, novel, uh, Dr. No. He was using a Beretta uh, before that, and, and Boothroy pointed out to Ian Fleming in a letter, this is a lady's gun. And then they had this <laughs> man who has this, you know, really hilarious mustache. Uh, he's firing guns in his office. I don't, I don't even know how they're doing this. In a cupboard, he has, like, a gun range. He'll, like, open up, like, a wardrobe where you think he would, like, he'd keep his suits or something, and there's just, like, a gun target. And he's just firing handguns indoors. I mean, he's outside firing all these. I mean, the guy's hilarious, and there is something deeply civilized about that, actually. I mean, in the sense Mm of, you know, a a gun is a, a, it's, it's the, it's the, the, the equipment of a, of a landed country gentleman. And, um, Again, something has been lost. I want to live in a culture where we can go hunting, where you can go to someone's house and they can properly use a firearm. Yeah, and let's let's be clear. Yeah, uh, so Don, we'll get to, in a second. Let's be clear. We are totally pro gun here. <laughs> for right. all the for all the Spurgs, we are very pro gun for a lot of reasons. Uh, Believe me, the best guns, the most the most guns. <laughs> well, you know, there's there's <laughs> the most there's, finely crafted. You know, there is actually an issue to this gun debate that's not remarked upon. Uh, that often and you know it, i i didn't think about it until i think it was over a month ago i actually read an article in of all places jacobin magazine but it pointed out the um, the important fact that a lot of uh gun deaths that we see in the united states actually come from suicide mm. you know rather than mass shootings we're losing more people to gun suicides than mass shootings well, as a Kantian, you know, i would argue that that's a great reason for gun control because we want to prevent people from killing themselves. And if it, the easiest way to kill yourself is to blow your brains out with a nine mil, well, certain, certainly, then... yeah, certainly that's true about the most efficient way to do. But I think it speaks again to this to this uh, sort of sad culture yeah. that we have uh, today yeah. in America. That you know, really, the biggest uh, the biggest issue of gun violence is people using it on themselves. This is kind of where I was going when I tried to answer Richard earlier, and I'm glad that. Hannibal flushed this out before I could I could go further into my analysis because his analysis opens it so eloquently. Um, I think that Richard pointed out some very good points. He went from the most obvious, the most you know, 
bottom line answer, which is yes, less guns equals less violence, I guess, in a, in a very you know straightforward way that is true. But he also digressed into that anecdote about the mustachioed gentleman shooting into his walk-in closet. Um, and I think, I think that actually, like, yes, it's, it's, it's lulzy, but it actually points out what I was going to say and that Hannibal began to say for me, which is a gun is an extension of a man's will. And yeah. so if, you're, if you, the man, the, are, are a well-centered, well-educated, well-bred, um, you know, emotionally and physically stable person, then the gun will respond, you know, like, like you know, the, 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 the conservacuck answer is, well, you know, uh, guns kill people kind of like forks make people fat. In a way, like, you know, I don't want to give conservacucks too much credit, especially not that type of conservacuck, but they're right. You need to have the will to take that fork and feed yourself to make you fat. <laughs> and so, um, and we just triggered half of Tumblr. But, um, <laughs> um, the, the answer is spiritual or sociological. Um, the answer, you know, you see these great pictures on, and again, they are usually conservacucks, the people that post these kind of pictures. Um, but when you see high school classes shooting in the 50s together, the girls shooting team and the boys rifle team and nuns with rifles at Catholic schools and stuff, Switzerland, you still have a high ownership of guns, but a very low, um, you know, mass uh, ma- mass killings. I think the answer is somewhat spiritual. Even You're right that we do need some form of um, heightened uh, uh, watchfulness for people that are buying guns when they're not in the right state of mind. I think you're right. That must that probably does beg the question, do we need stricter gun control laws? Perhaps. I don't know. I'm agnostic on the question. But spiritually, the answer is clear. Um, we need to change the people that we are so that the tools we use respond better to us. Yeah, the, the other and I'll cl- I just want 30 more seconds. Um, <laughs> Richard said something funny about urbanity in America. And I think that for the life of me, I can't remember which... Uh, anti-American European said this. Someone will probably drop it in the in the comments later. But one of my favorite comments about America, viewed from a European perspective, is America went from barbarism to decadence without ever once passing through civilization. And I think that speaks to what we're talking about here: the cowboy culture that we so um, revere. As you know, gun owners, I own a gun too. Uh, I think they're great. Um, these were men that were going out to civilized and uncivilized land. Today, we don't exist in that context. And so I think context is key. Uh, the other angle I would take on this is that in you know, someplace like Switzerland, you, have the, you can take the assumption that everyone has at least had military training. And, and especially in older America, most people, or most men at least, had been in the military. And so there had been a, a regimented way of training people. How, this is how you use a gun. This is, you know, you don't flag people with the muzzle. You... You know, you, you do certain things with your gun, uh, and now we don't really have that. We have a, a society where you can uh, buy guns pretty much at will, and at most you're required, I mean, for a, a concealed carry permit, you're required in most uh, 29 states. You have to take, I think it's like a four-hour class uh, or two-hour class. I forget. I took it, but whatever. And that's really all that's required of you. Basically, this is a magazine. This is how you put it in. This is the safety. And they're just teaching you on a, a, a Glock or on a, on a AR-15. And then you can buy any gun you want. And and you're responsible for it legally, which is, in a way, in its own way, I think, totally crazy. I mean, look at how Americans approach um, 
learning how to drive. I remember my... I, I, I keep dropping some family history I shouldn't. This is the easiest docs ever, but... The part of my family that isn't from here and from, from Europe, um, the way they look upon the, how young we learn to drive and how easy the test is and how quickly we exceed to a several ton, you know, hunk of steel that can potentially kill someone. I'm doesn't mean we're anti-car, you know, it just means, again, no, we're anti-car. <laughs> right. Yeah. In the, in the ethnic state, we've, yeah. Um, we'll probably have some sort of, you know, Zeppelins and high-speed rail, I think would yeah. be the great. No, but, but uh, all bouncing aside it does not mean we're anti-car in this in this side-by-side comparison I'm trying to make. Smarter people, better trained people make better drivers, just like smarter, better trained. And again, that the ethnic angle, the, the racial angle that, that Richard brought up also is valid here. In Iceland, where 250,000 people coexist on a landmass roughly the size of England with a lot of space in between and everyone is gen, you know, genetically and homogenous, you're going to have a lot less... Near zero um, mass shootings. The, I think the fact that America is is the size of a continent has 330 million people, give or take, and that you know there's a lot of there's a lot of sociopolitical cleavages that cut across this 330 million person landmass. That also adds to the uh, the the alienation, the isolation, and eventually the thing that the MSN calls you know mental problems, uh, right. m- mental illness that leads to gun shootings. Duh. Take away the guns and people get creative. I mean, I hate I hate to use that argument because it's a Republican argument, but uh, but Engl- England has seen a, a, a great rise in killings or attacks with acid, acid knives, everything. Yeah, yeah and like that's I guess that would be the next if if uh, the government does crack down on my guns, then that's what we have to fear. I agree. Do you think that we will see gun control in our lifetimes? Serious gun control in the United States. Okay. Uh, zero. Just, well, let's, let's answer let's, this really quick. We'll answer it really quick out of in a 0 to 10 scale. 0 being uh, no way and 10 being metaphysical certitude. Don Camilla. Like 7 Number. and a half. Good. Uh, I would say 9. Uh, and uh, this dam is going to break at some point. Um the the liberals are right about that. You know, how many more times are we going to allow yeah. a mass shooting to occur? They they they're I mean they're wrong at a deep level, but they're they are right on a on a superficial level. I will actually go against the grain here and just say three because I think gun culture is something uh, that is part and parcel of postmodern American reality, and it's uh, sadly part of the soma. I think that goes into that goes into pacifying um, America as a consumer post Americans as consumer postmodern citizens. Well, since they got to answer their, they get to justify theirs. My seven point five is because I agree with Richard on this more than I, I see. I see Hannibal's point, but I agree with Richard, and I, I'm going to add a racial element to it. America will I mean, the older whites are, despite our best efforts, unfortunately dying out. Even though a lot of them are boomers, and they might deserve what's coming to them, um, but. In that optic, I think that the the main body of three percent or most Second Amendment guys are going to die out too with that wave, with that demographic bump. And I think the browner America gets, the more open they will be to gun control because those arguments are more pertinent to the societies from which these uh, immigrants come. Uh, most of the world has stricter gun control in the United States, and so the the more you have Clint Eastwood and Robert Duvall and uh, those type of Americans dying out, 
the more you'll have, you know, Guatemalans who come from, uh, you know, violent countries that want to see gun control. Perhaps, happen. but you know, I can, I can, I can see that culture transitioning okay, very easily into this. a uh, the correct cultural... answer is indeed three. Uh, <laughs> the hardcore of Americans will fight to the death before, and there will be civil there there will be civil war before there is gun control. <laughs>